This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Worth Your Time podcast. I am your host, Erica, and I'm excited today to have Christina Crenshaw as my guest. Thank you so much for joining me, Christina. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, Well, give us a little bit of background about who you are, where you live, which is a really cool place, and um, just what you do. And before I jump into questions. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I, I always kind of start off with this, particularly if it's not, you know, a professional, um, like a conference or something that I'm speaking at. So we say I'm a wife and a mom because that is a role that takes up the most time and it's an ongoing role. It doesn't really change. So I'm a wife and a mom for the, you know, foreseeable future, thankfully. And um, on top of that, I'm also professor, researcher, writer, um, human trafficking fighter. I have been in a lot of kind of justice spaces throughout the past couple of decades and, you know, alongside teaching and academia, using the academic platform to really um, find places that are lost and broken and fallen and bring redemption and restoration to those spaces. So that's who I am kind of in a nutshell. So how did you end up getting into that space? When you went to college, were you thinking, I'm going to work in biblical or just, you know, justice spaces? No, not at all. In fact, you know, I graduated um, college in 2002 undergrad, and there really was like no such thing as IJM, International Justice Mission. There wasn't really a lot of places overtly doing like faith and justice. Um, now, I, I do want to say to the credit of the church, the church, Big C Church has been doing justice since the beginning of time. In fact, that's part of what's been so powerful about the witness of the church. You know, they love on the orphans and the widow and the broken and the least of these, the marginalized. That's always been the narrative of the church. And we have seen a lot of great justice movements birthed out of this faith-based perspective. In fact, I've pointed out to my students before, it's a reason why a lot of churches are like St. Mary's or St. Joseph's or here in the South in Texas, you know, we have Providence and Hillcrest hospitals and those are both Baptist hospitals. So there's always been this real mandate of the church to do justice, but I wouldn't say that in academia, there was really like a place to integrate that. And so after college, you know, I was a high school English teacher. I went on and got my master's, got my PhD, and was drawn to education, English and education. And I realized that there, again, there's so much brokenness and depravity, and we're looking for all of these social solutions, but we don't bring enough into conversation in the public square what the church can do. And the church is, I mean, for, you know, lack of better description, it's a powerful organization. I mean, you've got 70% of of Americans, according to the Pew report, identify as Christian, you know, like where they are on that spectrum and how involved they are in church is a different, you know, discussion. But, Mm -hmm. you know, you've got this many people identifying with this one particular religion or faith. That's a powerful way to mobilize people to be agents of change. And then I would suggest that we should do that then for the glory of God. Um, Yeah. So I think as I got older and I started to recognize like, wow, we're talking about, you know, different racial disparities or inequities in education. And we're trying to address this strictly from a social or sociological perspective. But the church kind of has 
the answer because God has given us an answer to do justice, a framework for what he has called good and how to kind of engage that goodness. Yeah, it's so interesting because when it's like people don't realize it sometimes, but like wh where the idea of justice comes from, where morality comes from, like if they're, you know, it comes from God. And so that is going to be the foundation of what justice is. And I think sometimes that is lost in this conversation about social justice. Now, you, I, I was reading on your website that you um, had got a postdoctoral and cultural engagement. And I'm curious what exactly that means. And then also, what are some of the classes you teach? Yeah, so I've taught a myriad of classes over the years. It's really funny because there are some professors who sort of have like this one niche area of expertise. And I have been English, education, leadership, human trafficking. Um, I mean, they all fall within sort of that sphere of education. You know, I haven't taught biology or chemistry <laughs> or economics. You know, there are things I cannot teach. Um, but mostly I have taught school of education, like social issues in education. That actually inspired my dissertation, which is on how does the Christian worldview equip us to become agents of change? Essentially, like how does our faith give us a framework for doing justice? And looked at different Christian universities, how they were integrating faith in the classroom, how they were equipping their teacher candidates to do that. Um, I've also taught another favorite class of mine is faith and writing. Mm. I, it's a lot of, I mean, it's a writing course, but I pull a lot of uh, Christianity Today articles. I have them read it. You know, I have taught even un, unbeknownst to my students because they don't necessarily know these terms. But, you know, I'm like, we're going to talk today about complementarian and egalitarian. <laughs> I'm going there. I know. So, and I don't have an agenda. I just want them to think about, and really, I mean, my heart is let's talk about ways that we can include women in the church. I'm not here to like tell them like who gets to be head pastor, but I will bring in like the Atlantic Monthly has a great article from a couple of years ago on Beth Moore, you know, mm. and it's, it's a great, Emma Green is the author on that. So we get to discuss and then I have them, I, you know, then sort of commission them, like go do the research. If you want to write, and a paper on what is the role of women or in the church. If you want to write a paper, some other ones have done the role of politics in the church. That's been popular. Um, a Christian perspective on gun control. I mean, the, the, it's a wide range of topics they cover. The only requirement, so to speak, is that you think through a theological lens. So mm -hmm. um, in that sense, it can be challenging for students because they're still forming their own theology. But um, I want, I my hope for them in that class is that they learn to think about things biblically, that they're not mm -hmm. really nilly letting the cultural winds decide how they feel, but that they actually have like scripture and some theologians as the touchstone for what they're thinking about these issues. Um, so yeah, faith and writing as a class and then human trafficking and anti-human trafficking class. Did you, did, can you hear me, Christina? Yes. You froze for a second. Okay. I think we're back on track. Yeah. Um, well, I think that's really cool. And I also just, as you're talking, I'm thinking like biblical narrative. I feel like that kind of, even that phrasing is, has lost, like it's not around enough anymore. Um, and just how people think about things. And when people are thinking about their faith these days, it's sort of this um, personal thing that is not so much guided by biblical truth, but more how people feel. And I think that's sort of part of the problem that we're seeing these days. 
But as you were mentioning, you know, you talk about complementarianism. You're clearly not someone that, uh, you know, will shy away from controversial <laughs> subjects, which kind of leads yeah. into sort of how I found you and, and the story that's happened to you in the past few months. Um, so I'm sure you've had to rehash it a million times, but what is the sort of bite-sized version of what happened with you at Baylor recently? Yeah, and I would say, you know, Eric, it's interesting because those who know me would say that I don't necessarily shy away from hard conversations. It's like part of what academia is, cool. but I'm not a fireball. You know, like I'm not, in fact, I've been on podcasts and people are like, do you have merch or a book you want to promote at the end? And I'm like, no, like I'm just an average. You're just, I'm just talking. <laughs> I just, totally, I just love truth. It's really what it is. You know, like I just, I have a high meter for justice and I have a high meter for truth. And unfortunately, sometimes that can be seen as controversial, but I would say, most people who know me are like, she's not out to for shock value. She's not a lightning rod, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and the thing that, you know, sort of created heat is not a topic of expertise for me. I have had to become fully abreast and apprised on this mm -hmm. issue. But mm -hmm. really, it's just sort of this everyday concern. But to kind of give you like the elevator pitch of what had happened, um, at the very end of January, Dan Darling, who for, you know, short description is a Baptist leader. He was part of Russell Moore ERLC. Now he works for, um, oddly enough, a Christian free speech organization. <laughs> The, I know the ironies in the story. And right. I know Dan too. So. Oh, do you? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, like even Dan is like pretty safe person. Like sometimes he says some like slightly controversial things online, but he's not necessarily a lightning rod. And we just know each other really through Twitter, social media, mutual friends, honestly, like we're, we're not good friends, but he um, is just put out this Twitter statement that said, you know, essentially paraphrasing that he is concerned about the expansion of title nine and what that is going to mean for females. Like how are we going to, to protect biological female spaces if we're going to allow biological males to identify as females and then occupy those spaces. And I think too, you know, the national conversation on this has turned towards the Equality Act, but Title IX expansion and the Equality Act, both deeply concerning. I would say even if you are a person of no faith, you know, atheist, agnostic, no faith, or you you know have a, a faith that is you know uh, vastly different than Christianity, some other faith system, this is a place where we should all be concerned, honestly. So I simply replied and just said, you know, yes, I am concerned. What about, you know, what if we don't want our biological daughters in biological male spaces and, and vice versa? And what about the rest of us that don't have gender dysphoria? Do we have a voice? No. And I like retweeted that essentially. But that was it. Responded to him and then retweeted that. I think a solid week goes by and people are either liking it or ignoring it the way that Twitter normally works. Yeah. But then, and this is as best I know, because students have filled me in behind the scenes, faculty, because I was completely blindsided by this. But the LGBTQ group at Baylor got a hold of that. I'm sure somebody told them, because I don't know that they were like following me on Twitter per se, and they decided to retweet it, retweet it, retweet it. Well, then it becomes sort of, you know, everybody within this niche group is now, you know, concerned about this and they're making it an issue. They decide to report me to Title IX, which, you know, which, which was what I was criticizing in the first place. And for the record, Title IX never reached out. In fact, very, um, you know, like sort of behind the scenes, someone who did work in Title IX reached out to me through social media and was like, I just want you to know, we think this is a ridiculous report. We're doing nothing with it. My mm -hmm. guess is that further enraged the students because they didn't see any kind of like retribution or justice on their end. So they decided to write a student article 
a completely scathing libeling article. The title of it was Dr. Crenshaw Tweets Transphobic Message. And the whole article, because there really is nothing else, Erica, it's not like they can point to like when she did this march against LGTB. I mean, there, there's just nothing. This is not my issue. My issue has always been protecting women's spaces, pr promoting women's spaces. So what they did was write this article making a claim that I'm not safe. I'm not a safe person. They don't feel safe in my classroom and I need to go. Right. So did you just, how did you first hear about the article? Did someone send it to you? Well, yeah, I woke up on a Tuesday morning. I think it either released like a Monday night. Everything is online now. So it used to be that they would print it, put it all at campus. I think that they have stopped doing that since COVID. Um, yes. So former students of mine who are deeply concerned, and then the email started rolling in. I had to hire a former student to put into an Excel spreadsheet all the emails that I got between the end of January when that article came out until I think I had her do it till the end of March. I just, you know, paid her. 566. 566. So initially they come rolling in and it is concerned former students. You know, my PhD is from Baylor. So some faculty that I had had who were mentors and um, then come rolling in mostly through social media, but the really angry kind of like progressive 20 year old college kids who just say, hurtful things that I hope that time will mature them out of, you know, because just things that um, are just really deeply personal and hurtful, but not anything that have merit, but still cutting words. Mm -hmm. um, once that article was released, and I can say in the 14 years I've been attached to Baylor, associated to Baylor because I did my doctoral work there, left, went to California, and was an assistant professor, came back. Um, I've never seen the Lariat paper do anything like this. And what I think it did was it woke up campus to a deeper place of concern. Now people were concerned with what does this mean for free speech for faculty? What does this mean for um, religious expression? You know, this is an Orthodox Christian Baptist school. She's espousing Orthodox Christian Baptist views, and we're going to libel her for that. You know, that's concerning. So I think that's when a lot of people started rallying to my support after that. The Lariat posted a retraction, or they they, they changed the, tar the title. They apologized for making it so um, clearly a hit piece. The provost, who is under the president of our university, had to come out with a statement on my behalf for free speech. And that like went out to the entire university, went on the website. Um, and I think that was about when like Fox News and, you know, Ali Bestucky, Glenn Beck started calling for interviews. Because, again, this became more of like a national concern rather than just the micro Baylor concern. So was the article, <clears throat> was it an opinion piece or like an editorial? It was an editorial piece, but it was an op-ed, you know, and so, that mm. was, and so they, I mean, there are all these different angles I and mean, people who, you know, journalists were like, this is terrible journalism. Like, this is a clearly a hit piece. You don't have any evidence other than you, you don't like her tweet. You're claiming she's not a safe person. And again, this is, this story is full of ironies, but apparently Erica, I was on the LGBTQ faculty safe list. I didn't know there was a list, but the, the article said, we're so sad to lose her. She's been on our safe list. And I think that that is just a testament to, you know, even like the controversial things we talk about in my class, it's a faith and writing class. I teach an anti, you know, human trafficking class. 
like even walking through those controversial, difficult topics, I still felt safe to them. You know, like Mm -hmm. I'm not teaching something that most people consider neutral or apolitical. Like these are really hot theological and political topics that we're talking about, you know, sex trafficking and sex work. And, um, you know, what do we do about that? Those kinds of dilemmas. And yet students still felt safe enough to put me on a safe list. But once I wouldn't, once they could see that I'm not going to wholesale accept the narrative that people who identify as transgender should be able to choose which spaces they want to occupy, then suddenly I was no longer safe. So it it really exposed a fallacy in their logic as well, you know? What do you, and this is kind of a big question, but it does seem that it's been very recently that all of the sudden, if you don't agree with someone, if you have a different thought on on moral order or the way things are, you know, traditional biblical values, for example, um, that you are a phobic of some kind, transphobic, homophobic, whatever it is, or you are just plain evil. You're a bad person. Like, where did that, where do you think that transitionary thinking came from? You know, it's so hard. And I've had lots of different online and offline conversations, people really trying to get to the crux of the problem, because I think we all are trying to understand, um, you know, Baylor has been doing for quite some time, for a couple of years now, these like civil discourse conversations where they bring in different people to have civil conversations. I don't know how much the students are actually paying attention, but I can just talk more of like some touchstones and some points around like this is helping shed light or this is making sense. So I don't know if you have seen The Social Dilemma. I would recommend that to you, Mm -hmm. to your viewers. You know, it's a documentary showing how social media has made our thought more polarizing, that we're just retreating to our camps instead of actually speaking civilly across the aisle. We're almost, you know, education is indoctrination, really and truly. And we are educating ourselves and indoctrinating ourselves only with one side of the story. And so that clearly is problematic and has negative ramifications on both sides of the aisle. Um, This is a quote from John Mark Comer. He's the pastor at Bridgetown Church. Love him. Love him. I know. I've joked. He's discipled me all of 2020. So he has a lot of great sermons. He has a lot of great sermons on this topic, actually, of sexuality. Highly recommend those. It's like a five-part series on marriage, homosexuality, you know, transgender. And it's just, it's so biblically rooted. He brings in data and facts. He brings in guest speakers where he doesn't feel equipped to talk about it. Highly recommend that. But what I was going to say is he broke down, and I'm sure this is from his book, The, the Elimination of Hurry. Mm-hmm. elimination of hurry, but he spoke in a sermon about the amount of time that we are being discipled by media versus actually in scripture. And it was like, I mean, it was a fraction. It was like, we spend hours upon hours, hundreds of hours being indoctrinated by social media people. And we spend just a few hours actually in the word. And that, I mean, that's particularly true for millennials and Gen Z. Mm -hmm. So I think that we are seeing this indoctrination of just believing the loudest voice instead of going back to like, what has historically been interpreted as true? There's also this trend that I'm sure you're aware of, of deconstructing and decolonizing faith. I want to say, because I always want to be, you know, um, charitable and fair and objective to any kind of ideology. I think there are places where the church historically has missed it 
greatly, even in modern history, you know, with slavery and, um, you know, our attempts at segregation before the civil rights movement. I mean, there are a lot of places where the church was complicit and silent and really does need to, I think, publicly repent of that. But I like to remind people that there are a lot of places where the church has gotten it right. You know, like see St. Jude, see every hospital, see the Red Cross, you know, note Compassion International, World Vision. There are a lot of places where people of faith have said, I see an injustice and I want to help be the answer to that because there's a missional call in my life to do so. So I hope that as social media is getting really loud with deconstructing and decolonizing, that we are not losing in that. There's a lot that the church has done well and right over these 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. And in 2,000 years of history, you're going to miss it some. You're just going to. The church is made up of fallible humans who are doing their best to follow Jesus and worship God. You know, so sometimes we're going to get it right. Sometimes we're going to get it wrong. But I think we're in this cultural moment where it's just easier to criticize than it is to actually, you know, encourage. And that's that grieves me as somebody who loves the Lord and loves the church. Huge fan of Big C Church. You are so speaking my language right now. (laughs) That is something that I'm always talking about. I mean, you know, I've done some research and I, I don't have the exact statistics in my head right now, but it's something like if you look at like what Catholic Charities Organization, for example, does for the world, it is absolutely astonishing what we would not have without the church. Um, And if you look at things like uh, the people who um, foster parent, it's majority Christian people doing stuff like that. Um, And and then that that always leads me back as well to um, pro-life stuff, which is you know, who's taking care of women and children um, when they make that choice for life. And it's the church, it's Christians a lot of times, not always. I mean, yes, of course, there are people that aren't Christians that are good people that are doing good things. Um, but but I'm so with you on, on that message about the church. Um, I wanted to ask you about something else, sort of pivoting a little bit. I loved your Instagram post with your shirt that says the future is male and female. I kind of wanted to get that because I have a girl and a boy. Um, um, and I know you yeah. had put it up a couple of years ago and then you re-put it up recently. But tell tell me about that shirt. And obviously that's in response to, you know, we hear this all the time. The future is female, which is, right. you know, a rallying cry. Like, you know, go females, which of course, like we're females, like we support women. Yeah. But why do you think it was important to sort of send that message as well? Yeah, yeah. Well, and in fact, and I will circle back to your question. My husband has asked me after everything that just happened um, at Baylor, he's like, "Where the, where's the Me Too movement in this? Like, where are the feminists now? And I'm like, oh, exactly. I know. So um, going back, that shirt is t- from two years ago. This is how much we have changed socially and culturally, just even in these these last two years. Um, I think that that shirt was gifted to me by Lisa Bevere. Lisa Bevere is, you know, oh yeah, she's, she's great. She's amazing. She's a friend of mine, and she first had it on. I commented on it, and then it showed up at my door. So I never ordered it. So I don't know if somebody from her team did, or she personally did. Um, but we are friends, and I believe that it was a church like C three Church out in San Diego that initially had made them, but I don't know that for sure. But they have responded. I have like tagged, you know, Lisa and asked, and and they've responded. So um, where that shirt came from, like you know. The, what made me put the shirt on. I think that I actually owned the shirt long before I put it on, like for several months and took a picture of it. But two years ago, right after uh, women's soccer won the World Cup, my kids were in a soccer camp that summer. 
And my older son, he's now nine, he was seven at the time, kind of just learning to read. And my other son was five, couldn't read at the time. But I took him to soccer camp and I'm dropping him off and I'm tying his cleat and I hear him read this girl who is out of earshot distance, but close enough to see his shirt. And her shirt says, anything boys can do, girls can do better. And, you know, normally I think that if I didn't have sons, if I wasn't, you know, a mom, I probably wouldn't have thought much about that rhetoric or the narrative that it's communicating. But because there's just something really symbolic and powerful about my son reading it as I'm tying his cleat. And this is a small town, you know, small town. So you got to be really careful with what you say and what you, and so I kind of turn around. I don't know the family. I do actually know who they are now, but I didn't. And I looked and I just looked up at my son and I said, Christopher, listen, anything boys can do girls can do too, but not better just because they are girls. You know, mm -hmm. God made men and women equally with value, but different in purpose. And so that was essentially what that post was. I think it was just from that mother's indignant heart, like, hey, women, like I have been on the Brain Trust Board of Propel Women, a Christian women's organization, you know, Christine Kane. I have been a director of a leadership minor here at Baylor. Like I am all for empowering women, particularly empowering women in the church. But we have to pause when the narrative starts to empower them at the peril of our sons. And there actually is data now emerging that our boys are in crisis. You know, like, and this is, you know, a different conversation, but really and truly, like, you know, your listeners can go look. Um, Warren Farrell, I think, is like kind of the leading expert on this, but he has a book called The Boy Crisis. But there's a lot of data out there. Boys are actually the ones falling behind. Lots of different theories and reasons on that, but you can go look that up. So I am constantly like, hey, we don't have to promote at the expense of another gender, like we can equally promote and we can promote unity in the process. So that was two years ago. And um, that. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Post, I remember, got like, you know, 2,700 likes or something, which was crazy, particularly then, um, had a rather smaller, you know, following of people. Um, but yes, two years later, I've realized, wow, this needs to also be the mantra for just gender, period. Do you know that God created us man and woman, and he created us in our in his image, and he created us with equal value and worth, but for different purposes and reasons. Um, and so I have, you know, I've had lots of these conversations, and I'm like, hey, guys, we can talk all day long about how gender is, is more of a spectrum than actual biological sex. Like, 
gender technically is a social construct. It's a social construct based around data. You know, if you take 100 boys and 100 girls, there are going to be gender norms that you see emerge. Little boys will almost always gravitate towards the trucks and the, the Nerf guns or, you know, whatever guns, you know, and they kind of more of the rough and tumble. And the girls will almost always gravitate towards, you know, the, the dolls and the playing house. I think that there has to be room and conversation around like, hey, sometimes gender norms are defied. And that doesn't make you any less male or any less female. My mother grew up, she joked, she's like, I'm so thankful that I grew up in the 60s and not today because they probably would have let me transition. But from the age of second grade until junior high, she wanted to be a male. She had a brother. She had a younger brother. She saw the way they got to do sports and they made her be a cheerleader. And that's not what she wanted to do. So she cut her hair short. She looked honestly like Scout from To Kill a Mockingbird, Mm. like that picture of Scout. But she just really wanted to be a boy. And she says now with, you know, the wisdom of having been a mother and now a grandmother and married um, that she's like, you know, it really was just that being a woman was terrible in the 1960s. Being a female was terrible. I didn't actually want to transition. I just wanted to do all the fun things that I saw boys doing. So now we have this narrative with like transitioning and allowing kids to transition. And that's been part of the Equality Act is what's being proposed is allowing kids to transition without even parental consent when the data shows that's like 75 to 85 percent and that's actually kind of on the lower end some studies show up to 85 percent but that kids who have gender dysphoria which is the dsm-5 term for confusion about what gender you are grow out of that by 16. So, you know, I think it's a different conversation to have, like, once you're 18, if you're still feeling this, let's, like, you know, get a team around you and have this discussion. But to have that any time before that just seems like child abuse. I cannot believe that there is even a question of this being allowed to be done without parental consent. Like, it was the health in human services administrator or the guy that was the candidate to be. Yeah. Yeah. He identifies as a she. That's yeah. I couldn't remember who it was. But yeah, so she has been appointed the secretary of health. And I don't know if you saw the Rand Paul. Did you see that exchange? Yes, I did. Yeah. And I just, I was, first of all, I just, when I saw the whole thing, I just thought, oh my gosh, I can't even believe people are questioning this. The fact that like my, my preteen child could go do this. Um, but, um, but secondly, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's like, I, like you were saying, I always want to be compassionate. I think parents only want the best for their kids. I, I don't think anyone's trying to be uh, abusive or whatever, but but it's like, like, like you were saying, looking at data, looking at facts. I mean, there, there are things that are just true and that we have to make decisions based on rather than sort of just the things that we come up with in our minds that we wish were true. You know what I mean? Right. Absolutely. Or I think looking at facts versus the way we feel, you know, giving us, you know, kind of data points for that. And, and I think you're right. I mean, very few parents are doing this to be malicious or manipulative. I mean, most parents, the vast majority have goodwill in their heart and they're looking out for their children. But I don't think that it's a stretch of an analogy to say, you know, like my kids, if I let them choose 
what they wanted to have for breakfast would just choose ice cream every day. And that's not what's best for them. True. So I think that it's as parents, we have to say like, what do I feel like is in their best interest long-term, not just how can I appease their hurt or their, you know, their, their dysphoria in this moment. I mean, again, if I think you do what you can to help your children fit in, if you're raising a girl who, who identifies more with stereotypical boy behavior, I think you do your best to like help her engage that and affirm her femininity. You know, so for example, and you know, my husband kind of has a hard time with this analogy, but I mean it. If my sons came to me and said, I want to be a ballerina, I want to do ballet, that wouldn't be my first choice of an activity, but I also wouldn't shame them. I would just say, you're going to be the best male you know, ballet dancer that there's ever been. And David danced before the Lord. Like I would give them examples of people who were fully male and walked in their masculinity and still allow them to do something that is more stereotypically feminine. If I had a daughter, I don't. And she came to me and said, I don't even know, you know, because it's, it's actually more acceptable for girls to do kind of more boy things. But I think if she wanted to play rugby, I don't know, it's the best I could yeah. think of for a man. I'm like, okay, like, you know, know that you are biologically not built the same way as these other male rugby players. You're probably going to get your tail kicked. Might be rough. Yeah. Might be rough, but let's go for it. Let's try it. And, ju and just so you know, that doesn't make you any less female. You are still feminine. You know, you are still, you know, God created you to be, you know, all like nurturing and loving. And he wants you like, if, if it's in your future to marry and have children. So I think that's where society has just gotten the message wrong that we draw these hard lines or like it's either or. And so if you happen to feel like you identify with the other side, then you must be fully that, you know? And so again, I think that, you know, biological sex really is pretty much a binary that the cases where it's not are so finite that there's not even statistical significance around no, it. People I know that's their sex in the conversation. And that's where I think you have to be like, Hey, it's a fallen world. We're going to have anomalies. And you just sort of work that out case by case. When you look at the whole of humanity, that's not really true. And I think with gender, we affirm them and their God-given identity. And then you navigate, again, those nuances of like, what does it look like to be a ma male ballerina? What does it look like to be a female rugby player? But again, what the question mark really when it comes down to this identity that's what they're looking for. They're looking for identity. They're looking for love and validation. And that's part of, I think, why the LGBTQ community at Baylor was so outraged because they felt like I wasn't wholesale accepting their identity. And so it's something that I've had to think through. You know, again, like if I had been asked to come and speak at their organization, it would have been a totally different message than just responding to Dan Darling, who, you know, <laughs> are on the same theological page. Um, but, you know, the message would have been one of more compassion and God loves you and your identity first and foremost is as a child of God. You know, everything else is secondary to that identity because this really is a question of identity. Yeah, me. it is. Um, I want, there's something I wanted to transition to. You mentioned the Equality Act, obviously that plays into all of this. Mm -hmm. um, but when it comes to some of the uh, religious liberty stuff that is involved with that and, and other things we've seen the past couple of years, you know, it's possible that we may lose religious, some religious freedoms in coming years. I mean, that's, that's possible. And my question for you is, is that just, I mean, you know, it, the Bible says, you know, in this world, we're going to have trouble, expect persecution, things like that. 
is that something like as I saw recently that like John MacArthur not not saying I'm like a John MacArthur fan but like I saw that I think it was him that said he's really not gonna step his foot into the conversation about religious liberty because he doesn't feel like that's something we should be worrying about because you know we should just keep our eye on God and like people are gonna be persecuted and the church thrives on the margins and all these things um so how hard should we be fighting for that you think you know that's a great question I so first I want to say like not, nothing that John MacArthur has said is wrong but it's really naive and it's also kind of selfish like you're just looking out for yourself John like mm -hmm. there's the rest of us that are going to have deep ramifications mm -hmm. if this Equality Act is passed um, and I would wonder if he would sing a different tune when they come after him when the Equality Act comes after him because let's be honest California is going to go after John MacArthur before they go after the rest of us you know so what the Equality Act could mean just to put it in, a, in an actual example for you know listeners to visualize at John MacArthur's church, they have a church camp and a, a biological male decides he identifies as biological female. He wants to go to the church camp and he wants to be in the girl's cabin under the Equality Act, because the Equality Act's goal is to eliminate discrimination, period. And at face value, that sounds compassionate and that sounds fair, that sounds equitable. But the problem is, is then that means that people who seemingly discriminate or differentiate, I like that word better because discrimination has such negative connotations. But if a church uh, differentiates gender based on biological and theological definitions, they can no longer do that under the Equality Act. So it's interesting for John MacArthur to say we need to just have our head down, you know, focused on scripture, eyes up, looking at Jesus, and to not worry about, you know, culture or politics, because the culture and politics are going to affect his church and his congregation. So I just, I think that it's naive. I think that that's selfish. I would probably have to hear more of like his case for that, that it's, that's a, a niche and um, outlier perspective. Most Christians I've talked about, even, you know, you don't have to be a sky is falling. It's all ending. This is the end times although it could be, um, to you don't have to take that posture in order to want to combat this. I think you just have to realize like you're acquiescing to a narrative that is antithetical to biology, to theology, to sociology, how we have historically done society. Um, and I think it's you're, you're allowed to be indignant about that and you're allowed to be concerned about that. Um, Utah had a similar case several years ago, and they passed the Fairness for All um, Act. I don't know if you're familiar with that. So yeah, I heard about it from the Ann campaign, which I know you like them too. <laughs> yeah, I do. I really do. You know, I can't say that, you know, I'm 100% on every, nobody is on any organization, but I do like the work that they're doing. They are doing their best to sort of navigate this political space being biblically rooted and politically neutral. I think mm -hmm. if push comes to shove, they are left-leaning. I'm totally fine with that because the things that they are bringing to the table are things that we should all be concerned about. I don't know that the Anne campaign is spearheading this. They might be because they put out a charter and several people signed it. But the Fairness for All Act essentially, from what I understand, was a pact that Utah had with the LGBTQ community that essentially said, hey, listen, we will do our best to make sure that public square 
spaces. Don't discriminate based on how you identify, you know, your your gender orientation, your sexual preference. Um, but you can't have our sacred spaces. Like you don't get to tell Brigham Young University that a biological male can compete in biological women's sports. Like you did these these places are off limits. So that one of the so in in that sense, it's a compromise because it says like, hey, sacred spaces are sacred. They're not up for public scrutiny, which is historically what we've said, you know, that under religious expression, you know, Baylor can say we're only hiring Christians to be at our university, that sort of thing, whereas Texas A&M, another university here, couldn't. Um, what is concerning about the Fairness for All Act, though, is that it does not protect public citizens. So hmm. the baker in Colorado is back in court. You know, he was the guy who said, I'm sorry, I cannot make a cake for your same sex wedding. I will. I, I he even like offered some solutions to that. Like this I, poor guy, I'm poor serious. Guy. Like he's been sued or whatever so many times. Uh, and my friend actually, I don't know if you know, Kelsey Bowler, but um, she's a friend of mine and she uh, is a reporter for the Daily Signal at the Heritage Foundation. And she did a video profile of him. She went out to Colorado and he is just, oh, just such a nice person, you know? Yeah. yeah. And so the Alliance Defense for Freedom, they reached out to me after what happened. I mean, thankfully, I didn't need their legal services. Baylor, you know, just to be on record, is not firing me. You know, like Baylor ended up siding with me, even if only on free speech. Some alumni and stakeholders are mad that they won't actually come out with a, like, well, what is your sexuality policy? But it is there. You just have to dig for it. And I am in line with it. Um, but yeah, so I did need Alliance Defense for Freedom, but they've been defending this Colorado guy. Mm -hmm. So under Equality for All Act, um, or sorry, Fairness for All Act, he technically wouldn't be protected because he's not a sacred space. And so mm. I think that's what's problematic. What I sadly see happening, this is just, you know, I don't have any, I, I can't validate this suspicion, but what I imagine would happen is even if the Fairness for All Act passes, if the Equality Act passes, then I think you're going to see a ton of lawsuits and, and just sort of legality around this um, within church spaces. If the Fairness for All Act passes, I think it's going to further divide that sacred secular space because it's going to force people who have just loved Jesus, integrated their faith into business, into, you know, like the Chick-fil-A's the you know, even In-N-Out burgers, apparently, you know, based somewhere along the line. <laughs> Uh, like who knew? But I think you're going to see them forced to become like however you register as a faith-based organization because for some sort of legal protection. Um, mm -hmm. You know, like my husband, I won't say his organization, but he does home health care. And it really is from a faith-based perspective. It's a national organization, kind of like a Chick-fil-A. And he's thought about this, you know, because he really has right now the liberty to say, I want to hire believers. I want to pray before our meetings. I want the ethos of our company to feel like faith integration. And he worries that under the Equality Act, he might not be able to do that. So then does he have to register as a faith-based entity and organization? So I do worry that that might further widen this like sacred secular divide when that's not really what scripture asks us to do. I mean, we're to integrate, we're to be aligned, you know, we're to do 
I teach because it's my mission field. It's, it's what I do as a teacher. It's how I'm being evangelistic. And I think we all want that for our spheres of influence. Like if you're going to be a social worker, be a social worker for the glory of God. If you're going to be a businessman, be a businessman for the glory of God. And I think that might be harder to navigate those spaces under the Equality Act. Again, that's just my prediction. I hope I'm wrong. Yeah, I mean, if you are a believer, you really can't separate your work from your faith life. It's it's right. really impossible to do that. So yeah, I, I don't think people fully understand the implications sometimes and they hear things like the Equality Act and they automatically think that everything about it is good because it represents equality, but there's a lot of nuance, a lot of details that people just don't realize the implications that could happen for people that they probably know and love, you know? Mm -hmm. So that makes sense. Um, I just have a couple more questions. Yeah. Um, one, one thing I would have, I, I really, do you listen to, um, Elisa Childers? Um, I don't, but she's been recommending me so many times. She's so great. Yeah. She's yeah, kind of blown up recently and said, you need to listen to her too. So yeah. Yeah, she's great. But so her whole focus is is progressive Christianity. So she wrote a book about it. Her book is called Another Gospel because, you know, I can't remember where in the Gospels it says, but, you know, Paul says somewhere like, it, you know, there it, it, are you reading another gospel? Like there is no yeah. other gospel. And right. so she has this great podcast. And so anyway, this whole progressive Christianity thing has been really interesting. Like I sometimes lately think like when I say I'm a Christian, I almost feel like I need to like, yeah, like, like, but not yeah. that kind of Christian or, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so you almost mm -hmm. don't know where people really are these days. So when you hear the term progressive Christianity, what does that mean to you? And you know, what are you seeing in this movement? Yeah, you know, I need to, so I've read on liberation theology, you know, you had asked what um, my fellowship was, I did a postdoctoral fellowship at Dallas Theological Seminary, and essentially partnered with the Hendricks Center, they have a center there on cultural engagement and leadership. Uh, Daryl Bach is kind of the, the main guy, main theologian who runs it, and then Bill Hendricks. Howard Hendrickson. Um, and the year that I did the fellowship, it was actually on complementarian, egalitarian, going through, and they, they really try to take this, they're a complementarian uh, seminary, but they, you know, they're really trying to take this honest approach, like, let's look at what the egalitarian say, let's look what complementarians say. The year before I came, they did one on racial reconciliation. And so this was two years ago, long before 2020 rocked us, and they were doing this back in 2018. And so I've, I've really tried to listen to progressive voices, even if only to hear what they have to say and to try to understand. But some of the here, you know, just I'm going to talk. So, you know, that's sort of a micro, but like macro picture, what I see going on. I would recommend to your listeners. Um, I did a podcast on um, ideology two guys from my church who do a podcast and it was on critical theory. So not just critical race theory, because critical race theory is just a spoke off of the hub. Um, but critical theory in general comes out of the Frankfurt School of Thought in the 1930s, 1940s. And it's this idea of we have to deconstruct everything, that everything we've ever known to be true is coming from a power structure that we can't trust. And it forces people into just to 
categories. It's dichotomy. You are either the oppressor or you are the oppressed. That's it. You are the victimizer or you're the victim. And that's true for feminist theory. It's true for queer theory. It's true for critical race theory. And so it all comes out of this critical theory notion that we can't trust anybody who's ever been in power because they're really just using power to oppress us. So traditionally, you really only saw that in the halls of academia. So like when I was coming up with my PhD and my PhD is in education, I would see that in the social sciences, you know, like make sure that you're not an oppressor, pedagogy of the oppressed, Paula Ferreri, Bell Hooks, Kimberly Crenshaw, some of these people. But I would see this also in literature because I would have to write papers through a queer theory lens. Like you would take some innocent book like To Kill a Mockingbird, and I would have to write this paper and make Scout gay, you know, because that's what I know. It's so, so interesting. I didn't even know that was done. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> queer theory or feminist theory or whatever. And so you take the tenets of this, like, theory and you make it fit the narrative. And, and, mm. and I will say it was almost like a game. So it did not change my theology, but I'm like, here we go. Let's just try to make Scout, you know, whatever, um, fit this theory. But what I'm now concerned about, Erica, is you're seeing its way into theology and you're seeing its way into the public square. So now we have all been conditioned, we've been indoctrinated to see like there's an oppressor and the oppressed, there's a victim and a victimizer. So there are some tenets that I'm like, listen, there is scripture to back this up, right? Like the person who has all the power will often abuse power. We need checks and balances. We need Jesus. Like there are scriptures that can sort of affirm some of this theory, but on the whole, you know, it's like if this were a pie chart, I could find 10, maybe 15% of critical theory and, you know, critical race theory too where you're like, okay, I see some truth here. I see some biblical alignment. I'm concerned. Let's address this. But the other 90%, 85%, it's really just um, humanism. It's really just, it's, it's, it's really just coming down to these are kind of these like social constructs that we have invented ourselves. And if you really dig deep, you start to see the people who are making up these critical theories, this progressive Christianity, which I'm, you know, comes out of like a critical theory, liberation theology. Um, they're just the oppressor perpetuating another narrative that's not actually even based on traditional orthodoxy. You know, they're, ta they're talking about question, 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 deconstruct. You know, we can't trust, you know, the person with the loudest voice. But I'm like, you're just a loud voice perpetuating a new narrative. And mm -hmm. I don't think they realize that. Or a lot of it is based on lived experience. That's part of um, progressive Christianity. That's part of critical theory. Very few of the professors who are teaching this and like the theologians, I'm like, tell me about how you grew up marginalized in the slums of India, because you didn't, you know, you're talking about this, but you actually don't have that lived experience either. So I don't know. There's there are some people who have like claimed that they've deconstructed their faith and put it back together and come out the other side healthy, but I have not really seen that to be true. Most people enter this deconstruction progressive Christianity, and they don't make their way out of that. And John Mark Comer talks a lot about that. I keep referencing John Mark Comer because he does this all day for a living, and I trust his theology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But he talks about, they said, I see people move to Seattle. You know, they move from the South. They move from the Bible Belt. They had a pretty solid theological foundation. They came up to Seattle, and they get lost, and they don't make their way out. And so really part of his message is you've got to stay connected to the body of Christ. Yes. So what I say to, because to, students, you know, 
students reach out to me all the 2020, we're all in lockdown, they all have their phones, former students, current students, you know, having this crisis of confidence in their faith. Some of them are even like Baptist preachers' kids. And I think it's just because we're in a silo listening to these, these voices that are not necessarily speaking biblical truth. And I would just say to them, okay, guys, listen, you have to go back to fruit, go back to roots and fruit. What is the root of this? And what is the fruit of this? Like when you're looking and I, and I intentionally won't pick on any progressive Christians, but I would name a progressive Christian. I'm like, they're divorced. They are angry all the time. There's not a lot of fruit coming from their life. They're talking a lot about social justice, but what are they actually doing? Like, like what, what are they doing? And so this isn't true for me. I'm generalizing and I'm intentionally not naming names, but I'm like, choose to follow the healthy people who are loving Jesus. Bring it back to the root. What is the root of what they're espousing? And then what is the fruit of that? Mm-hmm. And when I look at progressive Christians, I mean, because pro- progressive can sound good at faith value, but if you keep progressing, you're going to fall off a cliff if you don't know what the end goal is. You know, and so it's kind of the difference between tradition looks back and says, okay, what worked? What didn't work? What do we want to keep? You know, what do we want to discard? Progressive says we're going to keep marching forward, forward, forward. And in theory, that can sound good. But how do you know when you've marched right off the cliff? Because you're going forward with no like touchstone from the past to guide mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I don't know if that answers. Yeah, question, no, it does. It's it's very interesting just to think about, and I, I I think one of the key things that stood out to me recently is just that people are not going back to their roots. People right. do not know their Bible. They don't know their theology. They are. It's like they are a house built on the rocks, and or which one is it? The sand. The sand. <laughs> the sand. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I'm like, wait, which one is yeah. the bad one? Um, but but yeah, they're trying to grow and thrive and they have no roots and they don't know where they're going. And I think it's like, it's time to stop and go back to the beginning and, and know God, you know, the truth from the Bible. I mean, if you're not relying on the Bible, if you don't believe the Bible is, is God's divine inspired word, then, then I don't know where you're gonna get your direction. You know, right. because if we don't have that, then we're sort of grasping and making things right. up. So, and I um, think kind of the progressive Christians will say, well, we can't really trust the Bible because it was written by the oppressor. We can't trust the people who are teaching the Bible because they're the oppressor. And it's like, you've got some serious trust issues, but why would I trust you? Like what authority are you then teaching your narrative? So yeah, I mean, just recently someone, I say someone, three people, I woke up this morning and, and they were like, have you seen this meme? And it's from this like decolonizing faith account. I've never followed them Uh it it takes um this category it makes a list of like white jesus versus like oh yes yeah it's just came out and i'm like this is such a theological joke like there's no scripture this first of all isn't a dichotomy like jesus because on one of it it's like white jesus is king but um real Jesus is a serpent. I'm like, he's both. He yeah. Is, he, he, he defies all stereotypes. Oh, you know? That's why I went to worship the king. And yet he is also the king who were who like washes the feet of his followers. So he's both like it's a ridiculous list. And it's coming from like a decolonized faith account. And I'm like mm. I know I, I saw recently when something was going around about the oh you know American evangelicals will be shocked to know that this is what Jesus looked like. And I'm like, 
I've never thought Jesus looked any different than this picture of him as, you know, a Middle Eastern man. I'm like, yeah, we know where he came from. Like we know where he was born and it wasn't, you know, Southern California. So, um, so anyway, yeah, that's, that's crazy. Okay. So one, one last question I was just going to ask you is who are some people that you like to read or kind of look to for, um, you know, when something's going on, who do you like to listen to or, or get things from? Yeah, I try really hard to stay pretty center. I think, you know, like maybe center right. And I will listen to some voices on the left because I do want to hear their perspective. You know, I never want to to be in the dark, so to speak. You know, like I'm always trying to listen, but I will give you kind of some balanced people. So I say that to say like, even as I give this list, there are some people I've read that I wouldn't necessarily recommend, but I've read them. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, You know what I mean? That kind of thing. So I would say for me, somebody who is pretty balanced, probably center left, theologically, politically, but really respect him, Timothy Keller, you know, Mm -hmm. generous justice, particularly, but he's done a lot of, um, He's written and spoken a lot with integrating work and faith. And I'm deeply appreciative for that. You know, this, this idea that like, again, like if you're going to be a ballet dancer, a social worker, a, a teacher, a pastor, do it all for the glory of God. This is how you integrate it. So, you know, Timothy Keller, um, big fan of his. Uh, I've been reading the, the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary has a list of books. So you can go there to kind of look at their recommendations. Um, Karen Swallow Pryor. Um, you know, KSP, she's at, she was at Liberty University. She's now at a seminary, Southeastern Baptist, maybe, but she, um, she writes, her books are more um, literary, but when she writes her op-eds, um, those are all on cultural engagement, like she'll write for Christianity Today or even USA Today, The Atlantic. So um, I follow her as well. Jackie Hill Perry, she mm-hmm. has been a great teacher to me on all things LGBTQ because she walked in that lifestyle. I love her message. She's like, hey, Jesus didn't really um, save me from this lifestyle. He saved me from myself. He rightly ordered my affections. And I like that perspective that it's really it's less of like a conversion therapy and more of like a heart transformation, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um on that. Um, some other people, um, Jenny Allen, I just, I Oh, love I love Jenny Allen. Yeah, yeah. She's just everyone's best friend, you know, that kind of a person where you, you know, she's gone to seminary and I like that, you know, not to, you know, not to, you only have to listen to people who have gone to seminary, but there <laughs> are always a lot of women who have been to seminary and who are writing. Uh, Kat Armstrong is a friend of mine and she writes a lot on empowering women from a faith perspective. So yeah, I mean, there's so many I could name. Yeah, it's so hard to choose, yeah. It's so hard, but I would say that um, I've been taking a few classes at Dallas Theological Seminary and the most of the books that the Hendricks Center will have like under their resources, um, those are, are great people you can trust. Priscilla Schreier, she went to DTS, so somebody else can come to mind, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, Christina, stay with me um, when we, when we stop, but thank you so much for your time today. I thought this was a great conversation. It was really great to get your thoughts on all of these things. Um, And I just appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Erica. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.